I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part one in the series, Season of the Spirit, Season of the Flesh. The world is in crisis with no signs of relenting. As human beings, we have no choice but to respond. Will we be led away by the anger and anxiety of the world, or will we move upstream against the current to find the peace of the Spirit in the season of the flesh? begin by saying this. There's a lot we still don't know about dinosaurs, but one thing we know for sure, they're dead. Uh, What we do know about dinosaurs we've gleaned from fossils. And fossils are rare because the conditions necessary to create them are so precise. So it doesn't really happen a lot. This is one of the world's most famous specimens. It's a tyrannosaur called Sue that's in Chicago, one of the most complete of such skeletons. So to make fossils happen at all, first, sediment, like, you know, mud or sand, has to cover an animal's body after it's died. Then the soft tissues rot away, leaving behind the teeth and the bones. Now, after a long while, the sediment hardens into rock that encases those bones. And then this lengthy exchange has to happen where minerals from the surrounding groundwater and sediment begin to replace some of the original minerals in the bones. And then, hard as rock, somewhere in the dirt, waits the fossilized remains of some dead thing. The rarity of fossils notwithstanding, paleontologists continue to unearth the remains of dinosaurs, some specimens kind of scattered, others intact and fully complete, all over the world, thousands and thousands of them more every year, which tells scientists that at some point these animals dominated the globe. Now they're gone. Pretty much everyone knows that part. But what fewer people realize is that several massive extinction-level events preceded the ultimate demise of the dinosaurs. It's what ended what we call the Permian period. It's what ended what we call the Triassic period. And then the Cretaceous Paleogene extinction event tucked these prehistoric beasts in for their long dirt nap. Whatever you think about dinosaurs, it seems unlikely that they were astronomers. So if our best guess is right that the extinction event was triggered by some kind of enormous asteroid hitting the Earth, No one who was on Earth at the time saw it coming. One day it's life as usual, and the next there's a shape in the sky, and suddenly the equivalent energy of several million nuclear weapons detonating detonating simultaneously on Earth. The end of the entire Mesozoic era and the beginning of the Cenozoic era, which continues to this day. It is, as Dr. Ian Malcolm said in a 2018 film about dinosaurs, change is like death. You don't know what it looks like until you're standing at the gates. No one plans to be standing at the gates. And when you get there, the world just goes on spinning either way. I've been thinking about change a lot lately. I guess a lot of us have. You know, my kids won't be returning to school in the fall. No one knows when they will. No one knows exactly how long we'll be here at Vineyard like this with masks and, you know, dowel rods in the pew and all that. In the fog of uncertainty, change lumbers about like a shapeless monster. We can't really forecast anything that it will touch or warp or destroy. Who could guess, for example, that because some animal bit another animal and someone ate that animal or something, Powell's City of Books, the world's largest bookstore founded in 1971, will likely close its doors forever. That we're here at all, and like this, 
with the thermometer at the door and the hand sanitizer stations and the tape pews and the mask. It's all an ever-present visual reminder that this nebulous season of change isn't over yet. We're in it right now. As a church, we've been doing the best we can to move and adapt and survive and not just survive, but find some way to thrive under unprecedented circumstances. Of course, we knew that this, the Sunday evenings at Vineyard with the safety protocols, we knew that this would not be back to normal. But ever since that first Sunday back a few weeks ago, I've been asking myself constantly every week, how do we use this time well? People have been talking quite a bit about how bad 2020 has been thus far. There's still a good bit of it to go, by the way. Global pandemic, injustice, police brutality, protests, riots, economic collapse, closures, lockdown. Months ago now, we had a series called uh, A Litany Against Fear, and it was a designed to address the initial impact of the crisis. And the crisis now, months later, shows no signs of relenting. And I think we have a unique opportunity. We've been figuring things out, trial and error, obviously, but I don't think that we should just import the familiar Sunday format into this season and this setting. I think something else is happening. Our church if you know, is built around the idea of practicing the way of Jesus together. We say it all the time. We study the teachings of Jesus and the scriptures, and then we actually practice living them out together. We call it counterformation because the idea is to move against the ordinary and inevitable flow of life and to create new rhythms and habits, a new lifestyle for following Jesus well. That kind of thing doesn't just happen. It takes practice, discipline, planning to go against the ordinary and inevitable flow of life. But this, this is not the ordinary and inevitable flow of life. This is an ongoing crisis. This is pressure on our thinking and feeling, on culture and society. And I believe this can become a kind of training camp for us. I've been watching a lot of boxing movies lately. I'm trying to see all of them. This is a thing I decided to try to do. And uh, what I've noticed is that, in, at least in every movie, before an important fight, the boxer enters a period of intense, focused training. They call it training camp. And I'm assuming that if you are a boxer or an athlete of some kind, you're always working to maintain some level of fitness. You're always living by certain rhythms and habits and all that. But there are unique periods during which a certain type of focused preparation becomes crucial. And I've been thinking about that. So if you have your Bible, would you go ahead and turn to Galatians chapter 5 in the New Testament? Feel free to consult the table of contents, Galatians 5. Everyone, everyone has been and will be responding to what's going on in the world. No one has any choice in the matter, really. Doing nothing is a response. Apathy is a response. Activity is a response. Despair is a response. Everything in that range, from passivity to outrage and hysteria, and everything in between it is a response. And in Galatians 5, Paul talks about two basic response mechanisms of the human animal. So let's read beginning in verse 13, Galatians 5, verse 13. Paul says, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. 
Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and forbearance and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control against those kinds of things there is no law those who belong to messiah jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires since we live by the spirit let us keep in step with the spirit let us not become conceited provoking and envying each other So here Paul is describing two basic ways the human being responds to life in the world. Two operating systems for existence. These operating systems are set at fundamental odds. There's no overlap. There's no Venn diagram. There's one and there's the other. He says they're in conflict with each other. One basic mode of operation is to navigate life apart from God. It's the operation of self. The other is life guided, propelled, energized, and animated by the resources of the Holy Spirit. Now, all the way back in our More of the Holy Spirit series, if you were around back then, we described the Holy Spirit as God's empowering presence. The Holy Spirit is not a vague force in the world. It's not an impersonal energy. The Holy Spirit is a person. He is how Jesus makes good on his promise to be with us always, even to the very end. The Spirit is God's active and dynamic closeness. When we talk about hearing from God or getting a sense of God's presence, intimacy with God, it's all by the Spirit. He speaks and teaches and guides and convicts and empowers us. All of discipleship to Jesus, from prayer to Bible study to ethics to theology, relationships, lifestyle, all of it is tethered to the person of God's Spirit. You see, most of life on this rock ever hurtling through space and time is arranged in all sorts of chaotic patterns that draw us to responses and solutions apart from God. That's the gravitational pull of life in the world. It's always been this way. Thousands of years ago, a man called Paul planted a church in a city called Galatia. And then amongst these new disciples of Jesus, a myth broke out and began to spread that the Old Testament codes and regulations or the law, it was all still necessary to walk in the ways of truth. And Paul wrote to them to insist, listen, no, that's not true. You're free from the regulations and restrictions of the Torah, the law. The Torah didn't save anyone. It never set anyone free. It's no longer binding. But the Galatians worried that, well, what the heck? Without the law, without some kind of code, people are just going to collapse into depravity, embracing the ways of the world. And lest anyone twist Paul's meaning, he argues that you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Meaning freedom for disciples of Jesus is the ability to abandon an empty and procedural way of life in order to embrace 
the animating power of God's spirit with us. It's a new way of life. The spirit of God, after all, is constantly associated with new life in the scriptures. The spirit of God hovered over the watery chaos to create new life in Genesis. It moved into the valley of dry bones to reanimate what was once dead over Mary at the conception of Jesus in the tomb to raise his lifeless body. The spirit enters into the old modes of chaos and entropy and death and generates new life. But the flesh is not the spirit. Paul calls the flesh our cravings. In Romans 7, he describes it as our sinful passions. In 1 Peter, the flesh is corrupt desire. New Testament scholar Timothy George defines it this way. Flesh refers to fallen human nature, the center of human pride and self-willing. Flesh is the arena of indulgence and self-assertion, the locale in which the ultimate sin reveals itself to be the false assumption of receiving life, not as a gift of the creator, but procuring it by one's own power of living from oneself rather than from God. The flesh is an operating system of coping mechanisms for life without God. Neither the disciple of Jesus nor the community of God's people can receive what Jesus often called life to the fullest or the life that's really life when we attempt to function with two contradictory ways of life. So Paul says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the flesh. In times like these, the struggle between the two, the flesh and the Spirit, becomes aggravated. Philip Kennison wrote, what is happening in many cases is that the church is simply cultivating at the center of its life the seeds that the dominant culture has sown in its midst. As a result, the seeds that the Spirit has sown are all but being choked out. And the fruit that is being brought to harvest has little or no likeness to the Spirit's fruit. Said another way, the church that is being cultivated in the United States looks suspiciously like the dominant culture rather than being an alternative to it. I'm convinced that God is calling you, me, Van City Church, into a season of unique resolve, into a time of training camp. The reason is that this season is placing on us unique pressure, the season of the spirit during the season of the flesh. So for the next few weeks, I want to invite you into a disruption of the normal routine of a handful of worship songs and a 40-minute exegetical Bible study, and then we go home. And instead, work to cultivate a sense of the spirit. John Tyson says that, to walk in step with the Spirit is to create an overall environment that the Spirit loves to dwell in. That's the journey I want us to begin this evening. For a few weeks, the idea is to create environments for contemplation and prayer and worship and practice that we then carry into the week ahead, creating an overall environment that the Spirit loves to dwell in. Given the weird fluctuating unpredictability of everything, I think we have a unique opportunity to create and steward that environment with these Sunday evenings as a few of us kind of fan out throughout the sanctuary and watch online. The story that we're being told and that many of us are tempted to believe is that something other than God will resolve our crises. 
Something other than God will relieve our existential dread. You may not believe that consciously, but maybe subconsciously. This is how the flesh manages itself, how it survives. Paul lists its various modes of operation. The first two are obvious. They're common enough. Doing what you want, when you want, impurity, sensuality, excess, lack of restraint. These are the kind of hedonistic things that we usually associate with a term like the flesh. But then Paul lists religious things like idolatry, the worship of false gods. And he says witchcraft. And witchcraft here refers to drug-fueled attempts at spirituality, manipulating a god or gods for secret shortcuts rather than the hard work of spiritual formation. And you look at the wide response to the pandemic and to injustice and to political tension, and the idea is that something other than God will resolve this. Something other than God will get me through this. Something other than God is what I or we or the world needs most right now. The other outworkings of the flesh have to do with relationships. Paul mentions hatred and discord and jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy. In other words, the social landscape of America in 2020. And we participate in them. And our participation in the coping mechanisms of the flesh move us inward so that we become self-focused and narcissistic. Ronald Rollheiser believes this inward focus is one of the primary barriers between us and experiencing intimacy with God. He said, we see this narcissism in our propensity for individualism and our corresponding inability to be healthily aware and concerned about the reality beyond our private lives. This, he argues, is made manifest in a few things. The first is the incapacity to recognize the reality of others. The yuppie instinct for quality of life. The movement towards excessive privacy. And the inability to act out of a purpose beyond the idiosyncratic preference. In other words, the inability to be most compelled by something other than what's best for me. What most suits my preference? What most accommodates my comfort? And I was rereading re- re- Rollheiser this week in my morning time of prayer, and this idea suddenly made my blood run cold, and I realized, man, this is me in this season. I, I have been entering my time of even morning prayer and worship thinking about me and my place in all of this and my feelings and about how, how all of it affects and interacts with me And I think God cares about all that, and that's definitely worth thinking through and processing. But I realized that I am losing a bigger picture of God's presence alive and at work in the world around me, not just in my own interior thinking and feeling. In a time of crisis, we will discover passive and dormant modes of the flesh that linger in our souls. We'll see how much room we've made for the Spirit to operate in and through us, or how little If you think to yourself, man, I'm not sure if I have those attributes of the flesh, then ask yourself, what happens inside you when you are exposed to a political view about the pandemic or racial inequality that you do not agree with? What stirs in you? What happens in you when you read headlines or see social media posts that you don't like? Ask yourself, during this crisis, during the wildly oscillating fire and brimstone news headlines and political infighting, during the protests and riots, how deeply did you feel drawn 
to and reliant on God above all else to heal the brokenness in the world. What happens when you look at the vague horizon of the months, maybe even years ahead, and you acknowledge the awful ambiguity of it all? Do you experience a sense of profound peace or a nauseating twinge of frustration and anxiety? And then ask, which would you rather experience? We never know what's on the horizon. Not really, anyway. And we never have any control over it. But an experience like this forces us to confront what's always been true, that we don't know the future and that we can't control it. So how do we confront the subtle and dormant and aggravated mechanisms of the flesh and of the world so that we can be shaped by the Spirit into an alternative society of love and peace and connection with God? By, Paul says, keeping in step with the Spirit. So that's what these next few weeks are about. Deliberately creating an environment in which the Spirit can move freely, taking the chaos and splintering fissures of our lives in crisis and allowing the Spirit to breathe into them new life as He does. Keeping in step in the original language is perpeteo. It carries a, a connotation of continuous practice. Another way of translating it is have a lifestyle of the Spirit or align your lifestyle with the will and power of the Holy Spirit. And that gets into things like your practices, your habits, your lifestyle, the overall rhythms and ecosystems of our lives. How do you best design your particular training camp? And a good way of figuring that out is to ask yourself a few questions. What activates the flesh? Is it the news or Instagram or Facebook or time alone with your phone or time alone with your laptop? And make difficult decisions tonight. Give no provision to the flesh. What activates the flesh? Is it certain patterns of thinking? Is it certain worries that you indulge that you can't relinquish? Talk to God about them tonight. Give no provision to the flesh. The flesh is at war with the spirit and thus those who operate in the spirit are often disliked by those who operate in the flesh for obvious reasons. And that produces more tension, more pressure, but it also wells up more peace and more confidence and more gentle perseverance to navigate a sense of strange alienation in a world of the flesh. If we are to become a people compelled by the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit, walking in step with the Spirit, then we will look very strange on a landscape of outrage and paranoia and political infighting and idolatry. Scott McKnight says this, life in the Spirit is the life of a person who is surrendered to letting the Spirit have complete control. But we see here that one does not gain this life by discipline or by mustering up the energy. One does not huddle with oneself in the morning, gather together his or her forces, and then charge into the field of life full of self-determined direction. Rather, the Christian life is a life of constant surrender to the Spirit. The idea to begin, this idea of training camp, of renewal, is to let the Spirit search the flesh and surrender anything that he asks. 
Surrender is a terrifying concept because deep down we know that if we put ourselves vulnerable before God and say, what do you want? He will ask for things. And if we put ourselves naked and vulnerable before God and say, what would you have me do? He will answer the question. If we ask, where is there need for repentance? And where is there need for dramatic life upheaval and change? He will answer those questions. And the way forward often looks horrifying or difficult or unbearable, but it is the way to life. What if the coming months of inevitable outrage and vitriol out there around us in the world unfolded like it will, but unfolded in tandem with our church in a deep process of internal work as we make space for the Spirit of God? Again, Kennison warned this. He said, the Spirit is the lifeblood of the church, the vivifying force that makes its very existence possible. Without the Spirit, the church is either an empty and lifeless shell or a horrific monstrosity animated by some spirit other than the spirit of the risen Jesus. When the church is not animated by the spirit of Jesus, it will be animated by something else, political outrage or by trends or by fear or by money or by status or by something other than Jesus. You and I in our church will be led by something. We can and will be shaped by outside forces passively if we just drift along with the current of life in the world. But to be shaped by the Spirit requires active and knowing surrender on our part. And we can help one another do that. And tonight can be, for those of us willing to take this journey, it can be a new beginning in that process. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.